Today's reading is Luke 17, 11 through 19. Now on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. As he was going into a village, 10 men who had leprosy met him. They stood at a distance and called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. When he saw, when he saw them, he said, go, show yourselves to the priest. And as they went, they were cleansed. One of them, when he saw he was healed, came back, praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him, and he was a Samaritan. Jesus asked, were not all ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Has no one returned to give praise to God except for this foreigner? Then he said to him, rise and go. Your faith has made you well. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Grace kids, first through fifth graders, you can head to the lobby and find your teachers. The rest of you may be seated. <clears throat> well, good morning, Grace Long Beach. Yes, there's still some leftover amens from two weeks ago. I love it. I love it. Keep going. Uh, my name is Will Vakurvich. I'm one of the pastors here. Thankful to be here with you guys uh, this morning. We are continuing our series in Luke. We're going to be in Luke 17, and we'll end our time in the beginning of Luke 18. So I'm telling you, we're, we're really flying through this thing now. Uh, and it's, it's good to be together this Sunday. We were talking before the service, and everyone was just kind of, you know, you have that, like, leftover, like, from the holidays that left over like, oh, you know? And so I think it's good for us to be together and just pause, like Christmas is coming, the busyness of the season is coming, Thanksgiving has passed, and sometimes we just need to like take a moment, remember it's gonna be okay. <laughs> We're here, Jesus is still good, he's still in control, and we get to gather together and, and hear from his word and worship him. Um, so I'm going to pray before we get started, and then we're going to dive into God's word. Will you pray with me? Jesus, we thank you for um, so many blessings of this season, um, the things that you bless us with, with friends and family, with uh, hopefully a good meal on Thursday that just passed with time together. Um, God, we thank you for moments to slow down and remember that you're good and remember that you're in control. Remembering that you are in charge of this story in which we all find ourselves. And so Jesus, in the midst of the busyness and the tiredness and the anticipation and all of the many different emotions that this holiday season can bring, we thank you for a moment to be still and remember that you are God. In the stillness of these next few minutes that we have together, would you speak to us? Would you speak to our hearts deeply and in meaningful ways? Would you remind us that you're in control and we're not? That you have a plan and that you're coming back. We love you, Jesus. Help us to love you more. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. So it was uh, Thursday, late morning, early afternoon. My wife was preparing one of the most incredible hams I've ever tasted in my, wife, in my life in the kitchen. And my father-in-law and I were with the boys and doing what our boys love to do. We were watching YouTube videos. Uh, but we convinced them for part of this time we were watching like NFL highlights, like greatest plays in the NFL. And we watched this video 
they played a clip of the play first. It was when Peyton Manning was a quarterback for the Indianapolis Colts and Ed Reed was a safety for the Baltimore Ravens. I've lost some of you already, I apologize. It's sports, just stick with me and we're gonna get there. And they play the, the clip and Peyton Manning's one of the, arguably one of the greatest quarterbacks of all times. He drops back, throws a pass, Ed Reed intercepts it, gets tackled, that's it. Then it cuts to former professional players and coaches saying this is one of the greatest plays they've ever seen in their life. And I'm like, you see this every Sunday. Like, how is this one? A quarterback threw an interception, end of the play, that's it. Once they started to talk about the prep work that went into this play, the behind the scenes, we started to understand why this was one of the greatest plays. Peyton Manning studied film religiously. He would analyze defenses that he would come up against. He would target specific players, typically the other team's defensive stars, to see what they did, what they would tend to do in different situations, and figure out ways to exploit their tendencies. So Ed Reed was an all-star safety for the Ravens, and what Peyton Manning realized is in defensive plays, as he would backpedal, going back as the receiver was running forward, he would tend to open up his hips in the direction where he would jump to try to make an interception. Peyton Manning knew that, and over the course of the game, watched him, as he's like scoring touchdowns and running the offense and doing all of these other things, watched for this moment when Ed Reed would open his hips in one direction, and he would, Peyton's plan was to throw a touchdown pass in the opposite direction. Here's the problem. Ed Reed also studied film. Ed Reed knew that that was his tendency, and he knew he could leverage that to exploit Peyton Manning. So it's like this high-level game of strategic chess that these two players are playing, waiting for the right moment. When Ed Reed was convinced Peyton Manning would be watching him, so he opened his hips in one direction, but switched as the ball was thrown to make the interception. What looked like just a typical play, quarterback threw a bad ball and a defender intercepted it, was actually masterful strategy. There was a plan here that the casual fan would never have understood if somebody hadn't explained it. And it made me appreciate that play so much more. What looked just like, oh, here's the thing that happened, was full of deep meaning. Now, here's the behind the scenes for this week. About a year ago, we worked out the preaching calendar and we grouped passages together. And as I was prepping for this week, I read it and thought, oh goodness, what did we do? We're gonna look at three different um, chunks of scripture. The first one is Jesus heals 10 lepers and one comes back and says thank you. The next one is the Pharisees say, when is the kingdom coming? And Jesus starts talking about all these, you know, the days of Noah and the days of Lot and these people are out in the field and one is taken away and the other stays and two people are grinding grain and one is taken and the other stays. And then he ends with a parable of a persistent widow who just annoys a judge until the judge relents. And I looked at those together and thought, oh no, what is going on? There's just three disjointed stories 
or sections of scripture, I don't know how we're gonna pull this thing together. Thankfully, people that are smarter than me write commentaries and offer help to preachers who have no clue what's going on, and so we're gonna walk through these and see if Jesus doesn't have something going on here that will kind of draw out like the behind the scenes of the Peyton Manning and the Ed Reed, what's actually going on, what's actually at play, and hopefully that'll be some encouragement for us this morning, all right? I only got like half the amens because I did a sports thing, huh? I know, I know. All right, if you guys uh, are following along with us in the Bible that's underneath your chair, we're on page 876. We're gonna be picking up in Luke chapter 17, starting in verse 11. We're gonna do a slow walk through verse 11, and then the rest of our passages will kind of unpack this for us. So Luke chapter 17, verse 11, Luke tells us this. Now on his, meaning Jesus's way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. We have to stop here. This isn't a thing. This is not actually, a, a, you can't travel along, like the, a, a different translation would say, he traveled in the region between um, Jerusalem, uh, Samaria and Galilee. That's not a region. It would be like saying Jesus was traveling between Long Beach and Seal Beach or Long Beach and Signal Hill. Like, no, there's a delineating line. You're either in Long Beach or you're in Signal Hill. You're not like traveling between this region. There's not a thing like that. So there's ambiguity. Luke is setting us up to ask questions. Well, where is he? Is Jesus in Long Beach or is he in Signal Hill? Is he in Galilee? where the Jews are, or in Samaria, where the Samaritans are. A little history. God sent his people after warning, after warning, after warning into exile. The Babylonians came in and invaded Jerusalem and carried the best and brightest off into Babylon and left some people in Israel who were then intermarried with the surrounding nations and created sort of this hybrid religion that was kind of Jewish, but kind of not so as God's people returned from Babylon back to Israel, there was great tension between these groups. If you remember a few months ago, we talked about the, the parable of the Good Samaritan. You can go back and listen to it. We'll explain Samaritans more there. So Jesus is in between this region that is clean and a region that is unclean in the Jewish mind. He's traveling between this ambiguous zone between the insiders and the outsiders. And everyone who would read what Luke is saying here would ask, well, where was he? He's not at two places at one time. Where was Jesus? What's going on here? So Luke says, as he was on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. As he was going into a village, we still don't know where he is, just a village, 10 men who had leprosy met him. Leprosy was kind of a bucket term for any type of skin disease that would make people ceremoniously and, and socially unclean so distance would need to be kept so that the contamination wasn't spread to others. They stood at a distance and called out in a loud voice, Jesus, somehow they know who he is. Master, have pity on us. So where master has implications that Jesus is someone who has authority to help out. 
Now I imagine like the first edition of Luke is released. It's a national bestseller. And every Jewish person who's reading this is like, oh, they know who Jesus, clearly he's in Galilee. Clearly he's on the inside. He's with the insiders. And every Samaritan who's reading the first edition of Luke is like, ah, clearly he's in the Samaritan land. He's with us outsiders, the outcasts, those who've been left behind and forgotten. But we still don't know. They say, Jesus, master, have pity on us. When he saw them, he said, go, show yourselves to the priests. Here's a problem. Jesus doesn't say which priests. There are priests in Jerusalem at the temple where the Jews would worship that if they were Jewish, they would go to this temple and show themselves to the Jewish priests. But if they're Samaritans, they're gonna go to the Samaritan temple, to the Samaritan priests. Now the priest can't heal. The only thing the priest can do is inspect to see if there has been a healing so that the 10 lepers can be restored back into the community. They don't have the power or the authority or the ability to actually perform the healing just to inspect to make sure whether the healing has occurred or not. But Jesus doesn't tell them where to go. So which temple? Which priests? We don't know. Luke is setting us up. Think Peyton Manning and Ed Reed. There's a big setup here. As they went, verse 14, they were cleansed. One of them, when he saw he was healed, came back praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him Here's the punchline. And he was a Samaritan. So not only was he a leper, but on top of being a leper, he was a Samaritan. In Luke, we've seen Jesus heal lepers. We've seen Jesus interact with Samaritans, a people group who was known as unclean. Now we have like the double whammy of an unclean, unclean leper, Samaritan leper. Jesus told them to go to the temple. The temple was the place where God dwelt with his people. Jesus told them to show themselves to the priests where the, where the, uh, who worked in the temple to be inspected to see if they were actually clean or not. The Samaritan leper got something that the other nine didn't get. The other nine went either to the temple in Jerusalem or to the Samaritan temple to those priests to be inspected to see if they were clean or not. But the one had some spiritual insight. He went to the place where God actually dwells with his people. He went to Jesus. He went to the one who not only could inspect to see if cleansing could happen or not, but who actually has the ability to cleanse. He went to Jesus. He went to something better than a temple in Jerusalem or in Samaria. He went to the actual presence of God in the flesh dwelling amongst us. He went to Jesus. Now something happens here that has not happened yet in Luke. 
In Luke, as Jesus heals people, the common response is they praise God. Different people are healed. Their response is to praise God. They go out praising God. They return praising God. Typically, when Jesus heals people, they praise God. But this Samaritan leper gets healed, comes back to the real temple, to the priest who's more priestly than any other priest, praising God in a loud voice, he takes a few steps farther. He throws himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. To throw oneself at someone's feet is an act of worship. The understanding at that time is only God can heal. So why wouldn't the Samaritan leper thank God? Instead, he's thanking Jesus, who is God and who does heal. What looks like a simple play in football, what looks like a simple story in scripture of, oh, there's another healing. We've seen a bunch of them. This guy's thankful. We should be thankful it's Thanksgiving. Luke is actually doing so much more here. There are massive implications that in Jesus, Jesus is the true and better temple. Jesus is the true and better priest. Jesus is revealing God's kingdom to those who are on the outside, who have no business getting it, who have no business being the ones who are, who are enlightened, who God opens their eyes to understand the true identity of who Jesus is. And this is what Luke is telling us here. He's painting this picture. If we slow down, we can see what's happening. So we see Jesus continues. He asked him, <clears throat> we're not all 10 cleansed. Where are the other nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? Jesus is making sure we're aware this is not the guy who should have gotten it, but in the kingdom of God, the last will be first and the first will be last. Those who are on the margins are invited in. Remember last week, the rich man and Lazarus. Lazarus was outside the rich man's gate, but in the, in the heavenly feast, he is the one who's right next to Abraham at Abraham's side, the seat of honor. This is what happens in the kingdom of God. He said to him, rise and go, your faith has made you well. So we have this story that's, that sets up the rest of what will follow in this next about chapter. Verse 20, <clears throat> once, Luke is intentional. He tells the story of these 10 lepers cleansed. We see these implications of who Jesus is. Here's what follows. Once, having been asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Luke wants us to realize this. Okay, Jesus is the one who cleansed. Jesus is the true and better temple and the true and better priest. The, the Samaritan got it. The very next thing we see is the Pharisees who are these religious scholars, these students of the law, these experts in the law. They're like, well, when do you think the kingdom will come? And you can almost hear Luke between the lines screaming, it has come, it's here. Jesus is doing it. Jesus is the kingdom. The kingdom is being unleashed on earth. This is not how things work because of sin, but in Jesus, all of that is being flipped upside down on its head. And the Pharisees are like, well, when, when do you think the kingdom will come? Jesus replied, the kingdom of God does not come with your careful observation, nor will people say here it is or there it is because the kingdom of God is within you. Another translation would say, or in your midst. 
That's what we have on the screen. The kingdom of God is in your midst. It's here. It's being inaugurated or unveiled in Jesus. And as he's traveling closer and closer to Jerusalem, and ultimately his trial, his execution on the cross, his death, his burial, and then his ascension, we will see this kingdom being continually revealed to people. They'll get a bigger grasp, a wider understanding of what this kingdom is like. Here's the tension. The kingdom is being revealed to those 10 who were healed, to the one who came back and really got it. The Pharisees are confused. When will the kingdom come? Jesus is saying the kingdom has come. It's in your midst. But then he continues throughout this passage, and and it's a long chunk, so I didn't put it on the screen. I'm gonna read through quickly. Then he said to his disciples, the time is coming when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, the days like when Jesus was on earth, but you will not see it. Men will tell you, there he is, or here he is. Do not go running off after them, for the Son of Man in his day will be like lightning, which flashes and lights up the sky from one end to the other. So wait a minute, Jesus is saying the kingdom is here in our midst, but there's also a day coming when Jesus will be revealed and no one can deny that it's him. It won't be confusing. It'll be like when you see lightning. You can't help but see lightning. Even if you're not looking at the lightning, you can see the flash. He's saying it will be plain to everyone, just as it was in the days of Noah. And he talks about how some people, most people, except for Noah and his family, were not prepared for that day. He talks about the days of Lot. When Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. He says, don't be like Lot's wife. There's these stories of judgment from the Old Testament where most people were not prepared for this day. Now this feels confusing because the kingdom of God is in our midst, but there's also a day coming that we need to be prepared for and it sounds kind of judgy. And Jesus would say, yes, this is confusing. And this is how it works. This is what helps me. I told you guys my wife made a delicious ham, best ham of my life. I got the task of carving the ham. I do what any good husband does. I cut off a little piece for myself. And then, you know, I cut some for everyone else, but then I take like a little corner because I like the the crust part. Take a little corner for myself. So here's the question. Have I had dinner? Have I had dinner? No, I've had dinner, but I haven't had it. Have I had the hand? I've had a taste of it, but there's a feast coming. I've had a taste of the hand. I know how good it tastes. It makes my mouth water right now thinking about that. I'm telling you guys, this ham was incredible, but I haven't yet sat down at the table to enjoy the feast, the company of the people gathered together. I got a foretaste of what was coming. Jesus gave a foretaste of what's coming to the lepers. In the kingdom, there is no sickness. In the kingdom, there's no one on the outskirts. Everyone is welcomed in. Everyone in God's family is welcomed to the table. They got a taste of what it will be like. They got a taste of healing, but full healing and restoration is still to come. We get a taste here in everyday life. We gather together and sing songs and worship and that's a taste of what heaven will be like. But when we get to heaven, I won't be tone deaf. Thank you, Jesus. We will all sing together, people from every tongue and tribe and nation. I don't know how that works, but every different language will be worshiping God together and it will sound incredible. 
We get a taste now. We get a foretaste, but we don't get to yet enjoy the kingdom in its fullness. It's still coming. And so this is what Jesus is explaining, this concept of the already, we've already gotten a foretaste of the kingdom and the not yet, it is not yet fully arrived. He has not yet returned, reconciling heaven and earth, wiping away every tear from every eye, uh, eradicating sin throughout God's good creation, reversing the curse of the fall, all of these things that are coming, we get glimpses. We get a taste of the ham, but we haven't yet sat down to enjoy the feast together. Make sense? Ish. <clears throat> so he goes on and talks about how um, some people will be taken away. Now, what Jesus is doing here is not giving a step-by-step manual of how the end times will occur. Some people will approach this passage and say, look, some person's taken away, so then that can lead to different theologies. I think the point that Jesus, one of the points that Jesus is making throughout this entire section is more on preparedness, being prepared for his return, than the step-by-step how-to of how he will return. I don't think Jesus will actually return as a lightning bolt, but he uses the image of a lightning bolt to describe how he will return. Does that make sense? I know that some of this end times Theology can get a little sticky at times, so I want to be careful here, but I want us to look at what the text is saying. He is speaking to his believers, to his followers, his disciples, and saying, be prepared. The kingdom has already come, a foretaste of the kingdom has already come, but it has not yet been fully revealed. It's going to take a long time. Be prepared so that you're ready when Jesus comes back. Then brilliant Luke puts verse eight, or chapter 18, verse one. Following this, Jesus tells this parable. Uh, Jesus, then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. We see a picture of the kingdom. The kingdom has come, it's in our midst. It's still coming one day. Jesus knows it's gonna be a long time. He doesn't know the dates or the hours. Matthew tells us that, but he encourages his disciples to tell them this parable that they should always pray and not give up. So what Jesus says in verse uh, two of chapter 18. In a certain town, there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared about men. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused, but finally he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care about men, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually wear me out with her coming. And the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. Verse seven, and will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? So he tells a story. We have this powerful judge. He has all the power and authority and social capital in this village. He is the one who makes the decisions. He does not care about God and he does not care about people. He's not a great guy, but he is a powerful guy. The other character in this parable is a widow, a woman who doesn't have much, many rights in this culture, who doesn't have a man to depend on financially, 
who is vulnerable, who's on the margins, who some injustice has been committed against her. So she does the only thing she can, right? This isn't like, you know, modern day. She's not gonna stage a protest and do an online petition to get a thousand signatures, right? This doesn't exist. She goes to the judge knowing that he's not a great guy. He doesn't care about God. He doesn't care about people, but what else can she do? And she's denied and denied and denied. And she keeps coming back and keeps coming back and keeps asking the judge and keeps asking the judge and keeps asking the judge. And this feels like when I was a kid and my mom would have to tell me over and over and over and over and over and over and over to do something before I finally did. Or sometimes, once in a while, my wife may have to tell me over and over and over. A few husbands are chuckling, thank you that I'm not alone. But the persistence finally pays off and the judge relents. The judge grants her request. Now, we have to be careful here. What Luke is not saying is that God is like a judge who doesn't care about God and doesn't care about people. Luke is using the small to illustrate the greater. What Luke is saying is is if even an unjust judge who does not care about God and does not care about people will finally grant this widow's request, how much more your good and perfect and loving and kind and gracious and generous heavenly father grant the requests of his people who are longing for justice. If that word trips you up, who are longing for the way things ought to be, who are longing for the the restoration of how God created the way things ought to work, individually, between individuals and God, between people and one another, between us and creation itself, in the ways communities work, in the ways systems and structures work so that everyone can flourish as God intended. He's not only the good and kind and gracious father, but he is the judge and king who doesn't just have the desire that things will work out one day, but actually has the ability to work things out one day. So when we slow down and kind of peer behind the scenes, hear the conversations about Peyton Manning and Ed Reed in this passage, we can see there's a very clear train of thought that Luke is communicating to us. That the kingdom has come in the person of Jesus, that we are called to respond to that kingdom, to be faithful to the king, to be prepared because he is coming back to make all things right, to reunite heaven and earth, to wipe away every tear from every eye. And that just when we feel like all hope is lost, Jesus reminds us, keep praying. Because here's the reality, the widow couldn't do anything else. And when we take the time to be honest enough with ourselves, what else can we do? We have these illusions of control, these illusions of security, these illusions of if I attain enough, if I reach a certain status, if I do a certain thing, if I hit this milestone, then I can make things right. But for those of us who have tried, we realize it never works like we think it will. The lie is we just keep working harder. We keep doing the thing. We keep sacrificing more. We keep laying ourselves at the altar of our success or our career or our parenting or our whatever the thing is, but it never pays off. So Jesus says, be like the widow. 
realize you have no other hope but to come to God. And yes, sometimes it means over and over and over. And if you're like me, you're not good at waiting. And that gets really frustrating and it gets really hurtful. And sometimes that turns into things like church hurt and is God even listening? And where is God in the midst of the pain? And I don't mean to belittle those experiences at all. Most of us, if not all of us, have been there at one time or another. But I don't think it's by accident that 2,000 years ago, Jesus said these words. Luke interviewed people who heard these words. These words were written and passed down from believer to believer, from uh, the ancient Near East all the way to Long Beach, California in 2023. And so if that's you right now, God, you don't know how long I've prayed. Jesus may have had you in mind. And I don't mean to get all, you know, woo-woo, whatever, But I wonder if Jesus didn't have believers in mind who would have suffered, who would have been through hard things, who would have tried all the other things that culture prescribes to feel better and to do better and to be more successful and to fill those gaps in our souls that no matter what we try to fill, nothing will fill. And I wonder if he had us in mind when he said, keep praying, keep seeking after God. Keep trying, keep hoping, keep waiting, keep persevering, keep coming to Jesus. The actual temple, the actual priest, where God's presence dwells, where hope is found. So here's the question. It's just one point, don't worry, I don't have three, just one. What are you waiting for? For some of us, we're waiting for Christmas. We're waiting for uh, Cyber Monday. For my kids, they go back to school this week. They're waiting for Christmas break. (laughs) We're waiting for that promotion. We're waiting for that thing. We're waiting for whatever we think it is that's gonna give us happiness. And I wonder if the challenge isn't a little self-reflection of when is the last time I actually longed for Jesus to come back? Was it the last time I looked around at my circumstances and I felt desperate and I just said, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Make this thing right. Christmas will be great. Our Advent season will be great. The kingdom will be better. The job promotion is great. I hope you guys work hard to make lots of money, blessings on you. The kingdom is better. We all want what's best for our kids and we hope that they're successful and they make good choices and follow Jesus closely. The the kingdom is actually better. God knows we try with our kids but they don't always do what we want them to. Just like Jesus tries with us and we don't always do what he wants us to. But the king is better. He loves us. He cares for us. He desires relationship with us. So for some of us, it's this question of what what are we actually longing for? What are we actually waiting for? For others, we know. You felt it in your gut. Maybe you felt it the last few weeks when you've come to church, when you've talked to your friend who's told you about Jesus, you know what Jesus is asking you to do. I don't know what that thing is. I don't have magical powers, but the spirit speaks still today. Some of you know there's a sin that you've been waiting to repent of. What are you waiting for? Some of you know that there's hurt that you need to release. As God forgives you, we are called to forgive others. What are you waiting for? 
Some of you have felt unclean and overlooked for years and you've tried everything. Look at the lepers. What are you waiting for? Jesus, master, have pity on us. The invitation today is we're gonna take just a few moments to reflect. I'm gonna pray. I'm gonna ask the spirit to speak, to reveal to us what we've been waiting for or actually what have you been waiting for that's in the way of you coming to Jesus. And we believe that God loves us. We believe that he's active. We believe that he cares about us in this city more than any of us ever could. And so we're gonna ask that he does the heavy lifting of revealing those things in our own hearts that he wants to deal with, amen? Amen. Jesus, we come to you because where else can we go? How do we come to you? I think of the uh, T.S. Eliot line, distracted from distraction by distraction, and we ask you to call our attention to your face. We ask you to tune our ears and our hearts to your voice. we ask that you would speak clearly to us. What are those things, those idols in our hearts that we're waiting for more than we're waiting for you to return? Jesus, we ask you to speak to us now. What are those things you have been calling us to that we have been avoiding? God, what are we waiting for? Would you give us the courage to respond in faithfulness? Jesus, we give these next few moments to you. We ask you to speak clearly to speak gently, to speak your words of love and hope and conviction of sin and encouragement for today. Help us to listen well.